Have your Bibles handy. Please take one. If you don't have one with you, you will find one near you. If you don't have a Bible at home, take the one in the seat nearest you. Take it home with you. Put your name in it. It's yours. I know. What a gift. (laughs) A great value. As much as, I don't know, $10 maybe. Imagine that. Uh, Listen, this morning I'm going to be talking to you about various resources to help you better understand your Bible and read and grow. On the front side, before we get started, whatever I can personally do, whatever this church family can do, this pastoral team can do to help you understand the Bible, that's why we're here. If money is tight and you simply cannot afford a Bible or study resources to help you better understand it, please let us know without any hesitation or embarrassment whatsoever. We are here to help you, to equip you, to grow along with you in Christ. And it's growth I want to talk to you about this morning. I've fallen into a strange routine at my house. Um, I've reached the age my dad told me it would happen. I didn't believe him. It's amazing what you don't believe when your parents tell you when you're a kid. I noticed my dad getting up at what I thought were just ungodly early hours, and I asked him why, and he said, I can't sleep. And that that didn't make any sense to me, because I've always been the guy that needed three alarm clocks, each farther from the bed, leading toward the shower. (laughs) Something has happened in my life, something has happened in my body, and now I can't sleep in. Whether I want to or not, my eyes pop open about 4.30 to 5 in the morning, I know. Thank you for your groans of of misery and commiseration. And (laughs) you missed being here, didn't you, folks? You're a little little spicy uh, on the the first Sunday back with three services. I love it. (laughs) I've turned that into, from frustration, I've tried to turn that into a benefit, especially on Sunday morning, long before anybody else gets up. I get up, I've got a little chair, I've got my Bible sitting beside it, I've got a lamp that illuminates just my reading space, and the Sunday morning routine is to get up long before dawn and look at what I'm going to share with you this morning. This morning, though, I probably spent just as much time looking at the pictures in our living room as I did my Bible. We've had several really cool, gifted photographer friends down through the years, and they've each chosen to give us family portraits, probably about 15 years apart. And my wife's really smart and really sweet, so I don't know if she did this on purpose, but as I sat in the living room for the first time, I noticed that you can follow a progression of our family growing and getting older as you look from one side of the room to the other. I'd never noticed that. And if you know my wife, I I don't know how she's doing this, but she actually hasn't changed hardly at all from the time we got married. I look like grim death. Um, that's That's a whole other story and a whole other problem. But our two sons, the difference in them is remarkable. They've gone from little round faced boys to grown men, each standing a little bit taller than I am. Never noticed the progression of growth displayed across our living room. And that got me thinking, you know, growth is normal. 
If we hadn't lived through that progression, it would have literally been a medical emergency. We watched those kids grow up. We watched them from infants who couldn't quite open their eyes and understand anything about the world around them to developing that crazy death grip that babies have for some reason, to using that grip to pull themselves aright. We watched them learn how to crawl, roll, walk, and in just a few years sprint across a football field. That progression of growth is entirely normal and joyful. I sat there grinning and stopped reading my Bible and thinking about the sermon for several minutes, just admiring the difference from little boys to grown men. The reason I'm telling you about this is every single one of us expects growth, works for growth, pursues growth in just about every area of our lives. If God is kind enough to give us children, we watch those stages of development very carefully. If we fear that our child is falling a little bit behind, we worry about it, we pray about it, we seek medical help. No one in life is, I don't think, trying to fall behind and to not grow in any area that matters. Here's one, financially. Are you hoping to do a little better in 23 than you did in 22? Are you hoping to get a killer tax bill that just destroys your entire year for the rest of the year? Nobody wants that, right? Everybody would love a promotion. Everybody would love a raise. Everybody would like an opportunity, a new job, a new boss, just something to make it better. Family, friendships, business, whatever we're into, if it matters at all, we want it to get better. We want it to grow. And the strange thing about that is those of us who are following Christ, who gratefully bear the name Christian, it's our spiritual growth, if there's any area of our life where we pay the least attention and we show the least amount of purpose and diligence in making sure that we grow. Many Christians, too many Christians, are doing something in their spiritual life that they do nowhere else in the rest of their life. They just assume that growth will happen. They have a few spiritual habits, they have a few spiritual ideas, they pick things up along the way, they attend church sometimes when they can, and the natural inertia seems to be that it'll just happen. And just like growth in every other area, it accelerates, it gets so much better if you pursue it, if you're intentional about it. That's what this Sunday and the next two Sundays are about. I want to explain to you three things that God has gifted you with already, that you already have in your possession, that you've already enjoyed this morning just by being in this church service, and I want you to Make some commitments and set a chart, chart a course for yourself of growing in this new year because the Bible tells me that you were saved by Christ to grow up to be like Christ. The reason Jesus didn't forgive you of your sins and take you to heaven immediately is that for God's own reasons, to bless you and to glorify Himself Jesus is committed to making you more like Him as you follow Him here on earth. 
You were saved by Jesus so that you could grow up to be like Jesus. And that work will be completed. The Bible tells me that. That God is faithful and He will complete the good work He started in you. In other words, when you are glorified, when Jesus finally and totally saves you by taking you to glory, at that moment His work in you will be finished. But His intention in giving you eternal life that has already started the moment you trust Him is that you will become more like Him as the years go by. That people will see in your attitudes, your choices, your entertainments, your emotions, your schedule, your spending, in other words, in your whole life, that you are more like Christ. This name that we bear, Christian, is not a name that we made up. It's actually a biblical name. It appears in the book of Acts. The Christians in a specific place were called for the first time Christians, and in that day, it was almost certainly an insult. It sounded like this, oh yeah, here come these little Christs. Here come these little Christs. Now, it's like so many nicknames that started out as an insult, it actually ended up being a tribute. It actually ended up being a compliment. The people in the ancient world saw a change in belief and a change in behavior so profound among the ancient Christians, the people who knew Jesus personally, that they started reminding people who didn't believe in Jesus of Jesus. They couldn't help but look at these ordinary people, many of them illiterate, and say, you know what, that guy acts like Jesus Christ. That woman's attitude, the way she conducts her business, the way she treats her neighbors, the way she's raising her kids, it's just different. She thinks she's a little Christ. Jesus wants to duplicate that process in every single person he saves and every disciple he has. I know that's true because the Apostle Paul especially, I could show you this all over the Bible, but the Apostle Paul makes it especially clear. I want you to read the Bible with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul here is explaining in Ephesians 4, a church, he loved the gifts that Jesus has given to the church to help them grow up. And in verse 13, he speaks about the end game, the final goal that he has for people to become like Christ himself. Read this with me. We all have it on the screen. Let's read it together. It says, until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Let's study the Bible together for just a moment. First of all, I want you to see that though Paul, this is an individual responsibility, it's also a corporate responsibility. Paul is speaking to a specific congregation, and the intention is that everyone together, until we all reach Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. In other words, all these individual people, these families, some of them wealthy, some of them poor, some of them rulers, some of them slaves, a very diverse congregation in the ancient world. Again, some of the people in the congregation at least are going to be illiterate. The intention for, from God is that all of them together will achieve trust in God together. They will grow in the faith of Jesus and, notice, in the knowledge of God's Son. 
Jesus wants you to know him better this year. We're going to talk about that at length, and I'm going to try to be very practical, but because Jesus is a person, not an idea, you can grow in knowledge of him. And you need to remember, as you read your Bible, your entire Bible, which tells you about Jesus, introduces you to simply the greatest person you could ever possibly meet. When it comes to Jesus, to know him is actually to love him. You heard that expression, to know him is to love him? Rarely true of normal human beings. You get to know me, eh. I used to say in the early days of this church, give me long enough and I'll disappoint every single one of you. That was a way of telling the congregation in the early days that I was scared too and that I wouldn't possibly meet everybody's expectations. Not with Jesus. He is truth itself. He is hope and righteousness and goodness and faithfulness and mercy. He is justice. He is love. He is God Himself. Every good thing that's ever come up in your heart, your highest aspiration, that's who Jesus is. All of it, perfectly, all the time. And ordinary Christians are expected to arrive together in a settled, unified faith in Him, a trust in Him. And as they grow in their knowledge of who Jesus is, Paul then says, Ephesians 4.13, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So what is the standard of our Christian maturity? We're studying the Bible together. I'm actually asking a question. This isn't rhetorical. What is the standard of our character and our conduct, according to Ephesians 4, verse 13? Christ. How's it going? Are you better this year than you were last? Are you more like Him? That is the joyful, normal expectation of Christians. If you're not, I'm glad you're here. That can change, and it can start changing today in relationship with Him. Paul says it even more clearly, perhaps, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, we proclaim Him, speaking of Jesus, we proclaim Him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present how many people? Everyone mature in Christ. Please, dear brother and sister, dear friend, dear guest, do not sell yourself short in saying that growing up to the maturity of Jesus is something special for someone else. It's for you. If you are saved by the grace of Christ, you are expected and you are empowered by the gift of God's life itself to grow into maturity to Jesus. And one of the gifts that God uses to grow you up is what we've been reading. One of the gifts that God uses to grow you up is Scripture. The first gift in this three-week series that I want to explain to you is the gift of what you're holding in your hands. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul is going to make the clearest statement, perhaps in the entire Bible, about the importance of the book that you're holding. Let me explain the context for you if you're not familiar. Timothy is Paul's most trusted co-worker in telling people about Jesus in the ancient world. Paul says in another of his letters, everybody else is out for their own interests except Timothy. 
He's interested in Christ and he's interested in other people. Paul said, I have no one else like him. But Timothy was tearful and Timothy was fearful. And the second letter to Timothy is Paul's last letter. Shortly after Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Empire executed him. So the burden of the second letter that Paul wrote Timothy is to be his legacy. To give him a final invitation, exhortation, call to action. To remind him what kind of Christian and especially what kind of church leader he is supposed to be. And it's vitally important that in telling Timothy what matters most with Paul's literal last words, Paul talked, Paul talked about Scripture. He said, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that's Timothy, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me walk you through this. That first phrase is huge. It tells you that the Bible you're holding in your hands, all of God's Scripture, beginning with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, continuing into the words of Jesus themselves found in the apostles and the writing in the, of the apostles which complete the New Testament, all of it is breathed out by God. It's an incredibly rare word. It's entirely possible that Paul coined the word himself. He's drawing all the way back, I believe, to the origin story, the creation story in the book of Genesis, where God breathes life into human beings, and he's saying, Timothy, when you read our scriptures, understand they're not produced by human inspiration. It's not human ingenuity that put those words on paper. It is the very Word of God breathed out. So if you want a word picture, when you open your Bible early in the morning, this morning when I read a little bit of Psalm 119, when I meditated upon that passage in Colossians that I just read to you, I'm quite literally sitting face to face with God. I'm sitting there in my chair breathing in and out with the life that God gives me and as I read His words, He speaks to me. We don't call it the Word of God for no reason. The Bible refers to itself continuously as the teaching of Christ and the Word of God hundreds and hundreds of times across the Bible, and Paul here is explaining why. Scripture is breathed out by God, and because it is God's very Word, God's very breath expressed and put into by the work of the Holy Spirit, put into writing by human beings, it's useful. It's profitable. It's good for you. It will benefit you. And here he explains in these sequenced words, he explains why. Profitable for teaching, that basically means that it's the whole curriculum. That you can read all other kinds of books, and I do, but everything you need to know to grow into the grace of Christ-likeness is contained in Scripture itself. And you can and you should use other resources, but the best use of other resources is to help you enjoy God's other gifts and especially to help, them un help you understand God's Word for yourself. Then it says that it's profitable for three things, and these are sequenced or tightly linked. Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. If you've been in our church for a long time, you've heard this story before, so I beg your indulgence. I just don't know a better way of explaining to you how these words fit together in the Bible. 
When I was in high school, I was playing a softball game with a big lummox of a choir teacher playing first base, and instead of stepping on the bag, he stepped on the back of my ankle. He shattered my left ankle, and when the bone broke, it rotated, I think, about 45 degrees. Everything broke and moved over as I rotated to the ground. What that meant was that I needed an orthopedic surgeon with an anesthesiologist. The anesthesiologist made a joke, which I still remember, right before he put me under. These guys have a strange sense of humor. If you've ever met an anesthesiologist, I don't know what it is, but uh, he, he, I think to put me at ease, he made, me, he made a little joke, and I tried to laugh, and then clunk, I'm unconscious on the table. And then the orthopedic surgeon did exactly what these words portray. When it says that the Scripture is profitable for reproof, what that literally means is that it exposes what's wrong. The surgeon cut into my leg and exposed the broken bones. Then he corrected them. He put what was broken and out of place where it should be. Then he casted it, and six weeks later, they cut the cast off, and I discovered something called atrophy. Are you familiar? If you don't use a leg, it will shrink. The most terrifying part of the whole experience is me seeing my left leg. I thought I was ruined. I couldn't put my foot flat on the floor. It couldn't bear any weight. It was almost useless. It was explained to me that I would need to train, that I would need physical therapy and slow walking, and then running, and a decent amount of weightlifting with that leg specifically to train it back into muscular condition. Several months after the surgeon was done, I had done enough training that I was able to run several miles again. That's what the Bible says it will do for you. God, who knows everything that you need to grow into righteousness through His breathed-out Word, will expose what's wrong in your life, will put it back into place, and then He will train you up into the life He always wanted you to have. And some of you are living the testimony of the truthfulness of this verse right now. I've received a few text messages this morning because I've got some sweet friends that send me encouraging words and devotional thoughts. The first early in the morning, which I haven't even had time to reply to, is a testament to God's grace because the man who sent it to me was nearly dead just a few years ago. He was trapped in the worst kinds of sin. He was a prisoner to his own anger. He was using alcohol and substances and pornography. He was so far from any kind of useful life that he should be a statistic. He should be back in prison or dead. But Jesus got a hold of his life, and it has been my great joy and privilege as his friend and pastor to watch the transformation as he's opening his Bible and sending me text messages and asking me questions and explaining to me things that he's discovered, he's living out, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Read it with me again, please. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now you're useful in every way. Everything that this life may demand of you, you will be ready for it if you have grown into Christ-likeness. 
What I'm trying to tell you is this. God gave you His Word so you could hear from Him and by His love grow into the person He wants you to be. It is a God-breathed gift to you. It is a testament and a product of God's love for you. And if you will spend time with Him, you will grow to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The context here is this is the last time Jesus had with His disciples before He was arrested. He is praying to the Father in their presence, and for the first time perhaps in all of Scripture, you get to hear Jesus pray for Himself and for others, not as a model, not as an example, not asking blessings over a miracle, but this is the Son speaking to the Father as right before He enters the crucible of the crucifixion. And His specific prayer for them is, Father, set them apart in the truth. That's what it means to sanctify. It means to set apart, to put in a special place, to have them dedicated to Him. How's that going to happen? How are they going to be set apart? Because they're going to be lied to. They're going to be lied about. They're going to be persecuted and slandered. They are going to be hounded out of their homes, out of safety, into prison, into beatings. Jesus' prayer for these apostles who were about to endure persecution for His sake is, Father, set them apart in the truth. Here's how that happens. Your word is truth. So let's get practical. Let me give you some very practical steps to grow by reading the Bible. First of all, establish the habit of reading your Bible and or listening to your Bible. Listen, especially we've all spent so much time on our screens. Reading of all kinds is just plummeting in the United States. It's all video now. Some of you are saying, reading's really hard for me. That's okay. Listen to the Bible. You can go to the App Store right now and get yourself dozens of translations in English, most of which will be read aloud to you with the push of a button. The App Store, if you will search something called YouVersion, Y-O-U version, if you just search for Bible, that will be the top result. It's used worldwide. That little app contains language, it contains the Bible in almost all the languages of the world. Do not set yourself outside of spiritual growth because of a reading difficulty or a reading disability. I know men in particular saying, I don't read. Brother, you need to. And if you can't read, listen to the Word of God. Remember, the Colossians and the Ephesians that received these letters were ancient people. The majority of them were illiterate. They did not have the Scriptures with the same access that you do. You can have any number of translations in your pocket all the time. Their best opportunity to hearing the Scriptures was to go to synagogue or to receive a copy of a letter from Paul that their pastor would bring in and say, good news everybody, this Sunday Paul wrote us a letter. Sit down and one of the few people who could read would read it aloud to the congregation. 
You have way more gifts, way more resources, way more leisure than they ever did. And remember, the normal expectation of Paul is that those ancient, illiterate people would be able to grow into the likeness of Christ. So can you. And the best gift you can give your family, your spouse, your kids, men, is a father, is a husband that looks and acts like Jesus. It begins with the quiet, personal surrender of setting time aside to either read or listen or to do both. Second, study to understand what you read. The Bible is not magical. The mere repetition of the words, running your pupils over the words without understanding, will do nothing for you. I don't have time to tell you that story, but Philip, one of the early deacons of the church, asked a man, do you understand what you're reading? And the man's answer was, how can I unless somebody guides me? In other words, it's normal not to know. Okay? Let's normalize ignorance in this church, okay? Let's say that not knowing and not understanding is normal. Nobody holds it against the two-year-old. If the two-year-old doesn't know his times tables yet, nobody's upset. Everybody starts out knowing nothing. If you're a Christian, the base knowledge that you have is that you sinned and were far from God and Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and given you eternal life. And this Bible that you somehow have in your pocket on your bedside tells you all about Him is God's very word to you. From that basic understanding, you can build and you can grow. And to give you some resources, I'd like you to flip the page there. Here's just a few things that you can do. Number one, use a translation you can easily read. Going from left to right, these are popular American English Bible translations that go from word to word, very close to the original languages, all the way over to the right. The translators have made the decision for ease of use and clarity to give you the Bible's words, not word for word, but thought for thought. I speak two languages, so I understand a little bit about translation philosophy and how two different translators can translate faithfully the same message, and it sounds just a little bit different. All of these are reliable Bible translations. I preach from the ESV. You read one that you can understand and that you can enjoy. Because merely reading without understanding won't do you any good. Y se los voy a comprobar porque esta porción del sermón va a ser en español. Y no todos me van a entender. Anybody get that? Who understood that? Half a dozen people understood. What I said was that you need to understand, and then in Spanish I said, and I'm about to prove it because this little bit of the sermon right here is going to be in Spanish. And a few people laughed in recognition because they speak Spanish. I could preach the best sermon of my life, and if you don't speak the language I'm using to preach, it will do you no good. You have to read the Bible with understanding and please get, uh, get over any embarrassment or intimidation that you don't understand. None of us understood until we put a little time in. Second resource, buy at least one good study Bible. My personal favorite at the moment is the CSB study Bible and I bought one of those. I've given several away. I bought one of those for $14 at lifeway.com. It's a huge, beautiful book. 
The way a study Bible works, the kind I'm referring to, will have the entire text of the Bible at the top of the page and footnotes at the bottom where the editorial team, generally seminary professors from all across the country or the English-speaking world, will explain to you in notes at the bottom of the page what the Bible itself is teaching you. A study Bible is a huge help and a step in that direction because you don't need anything else. You don't even need your computer, which might distract you with a meme or an email or a text message or who knows what happens, interrupting your time with God. Number three, you can use commentaries and Bible study helps. In bold, I've put two of my favorites, throughtheword.org and Constable's Notes. Dr. Constable is a professor at Dallas Seminary. He's been teaching the Bible, I think, for about 50 years, and every year he faithfully updates his commentary on the entire Bible. Number four, use a notebook or a journal for study notes, for questions, for prayer requests, and for gratitude to God. Because remember, you're not taking a class, you're keeping a meeting with the God who loves you and who loved you enough to speak to you. Number five, join a group to learn together. Some of you in the last few months have made the life-changing decision to make your participation in this little family of faith more than a Sunday morning sermon. You've joined a small group. You're not sitting in rows anymore. You're sitting in a circle with other people with the Bible open, all discussing it, trying to understand it. It makes all the difference to share that journey together. And number six, and this is coming up in the weeks ahead, we're starting a whole new ministry called Crosspoint Equip, and that's going to have both classes and standalone talks where we give you biblical content and also address some hot-button issues of the day. As soon as that's started, and it will start soon, engage, participate as much as you can. Number three, keep it personal. Please remember, and this is vitally important, that when you're reading the breathed out Word of God, you're sitting face to face with the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who loves you. And Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you're sitting and reading your Bible, if you don't understand it, you can tell Him so in prayer. If it breaks your heart, if you read something that sin will not have mastery over you in Romans, and you realize that you have habitual sin that you've never been able to shake, you can say to God, God, I read what you want, I read what you're telling me to do, but I haven't been able to. And I just feel so guilty and so ashamed and so burdened because I I hear sermons and I read in the Bible and I'm nowhere near what you want me to do. You can tell him all of that. And guess what? In all of that, He loves you. Loves you so much He sent Jesus to die for you. Loves you so much that He sent the Holy Spirit to give you the life of Jesus Himself. This is relational, in other words. You're not taking a religious studies class. I've had a foot in the Bible Academy for over 20 years now. Let me tell you something. It is entirely possible to master the content of the Bible and have your heart unchanged. Please remember, the point of you reading your Bible is loving Christ, not mastering the content. That's the point. It's loving Christ, not mastering content. And those two things are not opposed to each other. 
Jesus is a real person, so the more you know about Him, the more you can actually love and trust and admire Him. There's no shadow side with Jesus. There's no downside to knowing Him. There is nothing you will ever learn about Him that won't move you further into faith and love for Him. He's not like ordinary sinful human beings who are, at a certain point, always a disappointment. Jesus never is. And if you learn all about Him and use all of that to obey Him and to love Him and to trust Him, it will literally change your life. It already has. Just be a little more purposeful about it. Fourth and final, share what you're learning with someone else. Dave Grossman is, uh, was a professor at West Point. He knows a great deal about the trauma and, of combat. And years ago, I heard a little talk he gave that said something that is so true to life and so important to the life of the church. He said, suffering shared is divided. Joy shared is multiplied. That's what community does for you. When you share your tears, your burdens, your suffering with people who actually love you, you get more shoulders under that burden. It's divided somehow. It's dispersed. You have more people to carry it with you. But when you share your joys with them, it's multiplied. Ever been in a football stadium when the home team finally gets in the end zone? The place goes crazy. Men who've never met hug each other. Strangers spill beer and Coca-Cola on one another in pure joy. What's happening? Joy is multiplied. It's 70,000 people excited about the same thing. The community of the church is intended to be the place that built on your private, personal relationship with Jesus, beginning with His Word, burdens are shared and joys are increased. Here's how Paul explains it in Colossians 3. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means let the teaching of Jesus make itself at home in your life. Invite Jesus in. He's a real person and he's utterly trustworthy. Invite him to come into your life and rearrange the furniture. Ask him to tear the thing down to the slab if that's what he knows it needs. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Notice, this is the burden of the whole church teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Would you like to be part of a church like that? Can I tell you something? You already are. That's what's happening here. It's not perfect because it's us. It'll never be perfect, this side of heaven, but it's real. Lives are changing, burdens are lifted, sins are forgiven, sinners are being transformed into saints. People who didn't even know if God was real are being transformed into real, authentic disciples of Jesus who are more like Him now, today, this morning, than they were six months ago because they paid attention to His Word and they've lovingly tried to put it into practice. The invitation 
to you individually, to you as a family, to us as a church family, is to grow into the full stature of Jesus Christ, to be specific and intentional and excited about it in this new year. And here's what it comes down to, church. What matters is making it to the meeting. Let's pray together. We'll be done in a minute. I just want to remind you that Jesus is real and He loves you and He's listening. And if you don't know Him, you can call out to Him and talk to Him and ask Him if He's real. If you're ready to be saved and forgiven by Jesus, you can ask Him to do that. You can do it now. He'll listen. He can listen with perfect attention and care to every single person in this room, everybody watching online. It's as if you were the only person in the universe. That's how good and strong and powerful and loving he is. And my invitation to you right now in the minute we have left is for you to tell him, person to person, to make a commitment that you will start showing up and reading or listening to his word. Would you tell him that?